How's it going, everybody? My name is Christian Wagner, and this is Militant Thomas, and I'm joined by Father Max today. So how are you doing, Father Max? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, just coming off of a day off of work, so had a day full of study about uh, the Council of Chalcedon. I'm writing a paper about that, so it's been a pretty good day. So tell everybody a little bit about some of your background, especially uh, focusing on uh, your studies in canon law. Sure. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I'm a priest, uh, Diocese of Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm from Michigan originally. I did my undergrad studies at Thomas Aquinas College out in California. Then for seminary studies, I was in Detroit for one year, moved out to Rome, did the rest of my theology studies at the Angelicum, and then my canon law degree at the Gregorian. So, so I have a license in canon law. Uh, I just got published, so I got an article out there, just procedural law thing. Um, but but yeah, and I, I'm now a member of the tribunal of the Diocese of Kalamazoo. So there you go. We got an expert on here. <clears throat> so uh, the way that I want to want to go about this discussion is first, because this is this is a very obscure topic for a lot of people. Canon law seem can seem boring to right. to many people, uh, I, but I, it seems very difficult to even get started in because it you just see these massive tomes and corpuses of law in Latin. And then right. you hear about all these medieval canon law texts that St. Thomas is quoting and, and so on. So first I want to get into a bit of those primary sources where, when we're looking at canon law, where do we look and where has the church historically looked? Sure. I mean, so nowadays you've got one place you really got to look and that's the code of canon law. I still remember I was in high school. I had a grandfather who's a deacon, and he gave me a box of old books he didn't need anymore. And the, the only book I remember from that that uh, that box was the Code of Canon Law. And I just remember seeing it and be like, oh, this is it. These are all the rules. And so I just kind of <laughs> poured over it. You know, I, you can't quite understand it all without studying and all that. But but uh, there's something about discovering, like, oh, we there literally is just a book of rules uh, that was very um, consoling in a certain, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so certainly now, you know, 1983, John Paul II promulgated the Code of Canon Law, um, but it goes back much further. It, say sources, um, there's different yeah, ways of looking at sources, but it's helpful to see canon law as a kind of a collection um, in whatever form it's been over the centuries. It's always been a gathering together of norms that come from divine law, natural law, um, e ecclesiastical positive law, so laws that are made by the church, and like relevant human laws, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's always been a gathering of these things. I mean, if we go back, you want to go historical. Um, obviously, you see in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, decisions being made. Um, you have the council, you know, people always talk about the Council of Jerusalem. I think one of the best examples in scripture is actually 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you mm -hmm. see St. Paul talking about kind of all the things canon law talks about. So the sacraments, for example, like who, who can receive the sacraments? How should the sacraments be received? That's all part of canon law. Um, there are marriage rules. First Corinthians 7, rules about marriage, rules about, um, you know, consecrated life, you know, people who don't marry, um, matters like that. Things like, um, like whether women should veil in church, okay? Mm -hmm. That's not a matter of divine law as far as I'm concerned, but it was a, something that was controversial, and so a decision had to be made. And so you see that in St. Paul. If anyone asks, this is the rule of the churches. And so, uh, and there's there's punishment. You got someone being excommunicated in there, like go oh, hand him over to Satan, uh, so that he might be purified. And, and so, so First Corinthians, uh, yeah, like I, I really like it just because it seems to be a good little collection of the sorts of things canon law is about. 
Uh, Second Corinthians, you got temporal goods as well, as well as uh, upkeep of ministers. And so that's, again, uh, relevant. And so those are those are the topics. Um, obviously, then uh, you get in the early church, you have councils. You're, stud you're studying councils. Most of the time we think of the doctrines. Okay, you got two natures in Christ and one person. Um, but just as probably just as important in many ways in those councils weren't just the doctrinal teaching, but the way those councils uh, govern the life of the church. They produced canons. A canon is just mm -hmm. a fancy word for a rule. Uh, like probably most famously to your listeners would be the canon of sacred scripture. You know, the, the rule for what books are allowed to be read in church and, and which ones are a standard of faith. Um, when I uh, when I had first started to study um, study the fathers, obviously my first place was the ecumenical councils, and I remember reading these canons of of the councils and being taken aback because I'd thought that um, I didn't really understand how law worked or how um, the magisterium worked, and I was like, man, none of the churches today really follow a lot of these rules. Like, what is what is going on here? Like, does did everybody just just abandon what they thought were infallible rules. But apparently canon law is, is not like that. It's a lot more complicated and can right. be changed. And that's why the very first thing I said is it is a collection of divine law. So things that are revealed in scripture or revealed to the apostles, um, natural law, things that are just true for humanity and always have been, always will be, um, and ecclesiastical positive law. The word positive, you want to think the word posit. So it's Whoever has the authority in the church can place down or posit a law that has force, um, but only because it's been placed and doesn't have to be that way. It could be changed or be otherwise. So like Council of Nicaea, I think it does rule that everyone stands throughout the entire liturgy. And we don't do that most places. You can kneel down or you can sit. Um, but at a certain point in time, it was necessary to make a ruling about that. And so they did. Um, so the first kind of great collections you know, you, over the 500s, 600s, 700s, you start to get these big collections of canons. Um, and they're usually gathered from the ecumenical councils, a series of local councils that were considered to have importance, and from letters of the church fathers, um, and letters of the popes, um, especially. Mm -hmm. And so those would be gathered together in different ways. And and to, uh, to be a canonist, you had to learn how to weigh those, depending on who you worked for, maybe your job was actually to sift through it and find a law that was favorable to, to what you're trying to do. Um, but generally, uh, canon law always favored the reform of the church, favored the order of the church, um, the holiness of the church. Um, yeah, I, uh, I remember watching, I can't remember exactly the name of the TV show, but it was about the Borgia Popes. Um, and it, it had in there this expert canonist, and the Borgia Pope came up to him was like, look through all of these massive books of canon law and find me a precedent for this so I can do whatever I want in this matter. So how, sure. how important is, uh, is that precedent when it, actions of precedent or um, occasions of precedent when it comes to canon law? Sure. So there's, um, I think that the importance of precedent does change over time. Um, so just like uh, I'll wait till I get to the year twelve thirty four, and then I'll, I'll answer that question. But the uh, so eleven forty nine is when you get Gratian, who's one of the most famous canonists, and he put together a book um, called the Oh, of course I'm not gonna grasp it out of uh, decrees. Yep, that's right, the decretum, the decretum of of, of Gratian, uh, which which really is the most formal collection. It becomes the definitive textbook, but it's still a textbook. And so the authority that any individual canon has in there depends on the authority of the council or the pope that it's citing. And it's possible that it is out of date. It's possible that it, it, it might have been overruled by something later on. 
And so it, he um, he says it, the, the title is something like it's a collection of like con concordances and disconcordances. or So this understanding that there is going to be disagreement between different laws, um, but that there's then rules that help discern and decide which law is applicable in different cases. So that's that's what Gratian does, his great work. 1234, canon law kind of changes forever. Uh, Gregory the Ninth commissions, Pope Gregory the Ninth commissions St. Raymond de Penafort <clears throat> to put together a new collection. This is called the de uh, Decretals. So you have the Decretum, this is the Decretals, the Decretalia. Um, and these are all, um, every, every single thing in it pretty much is some decree of a Pope. And when this is all compiled together, the Pope himself promulgates this as the universal law of the church. Okay. Um, so there, it seems like it, it kind of takes the direction of positive law. He's almost kind of saying, well, like, okay, everything that went before, it's important. And he was very clear about not abrogating anything that came before explicitly. So it still does have weight. You can still cite it. And yet the decretals um, were just one giant act of positive law. The, the size of the decretals is equal in size to Gratian's collection. Okay. And so it's, it's kind of understood to have equal, if not greater footing than what came before. Um, obviously not intending to contradict it, but it, in a way it's, it is one of the most massive acts of positive law in history. And then that becomes the law of the church really for the next 700 years until 1917, when you have the first code, which again is kind of understood to really codify what had been the law for 700 years. And then again, John Paul II, 1983, uh, updated that code in light of, especially in light of the second Vatican council. So so, so precedent, in, if you look at the, the current code, for example, um, it talks about customs, the way things have been done before and how that, how that can have the force of law. But I remember asking class, like, what does this actually apply to? And the professor was like, nah, not, not very much. Okay, the, um, the more I've read about custom and law and how it works, I see why it's there. Um, but the way it's been promulgated since about, again, 1234, it, it kind of doesn't uh, depend so much on looking on how things were done, except as a guide for making new laws and maybe for interpreting laws if there's an ambiguity. Um, so um, you mentioned one code of canon law, but if memory serves me right, there's a code of canon law for the Eastern churches. What What is yeah. what is that? Sure. Yeah. So I, that's, a, that's a good question. Eastern law, you know, like a couple of years ago, I think there was another podcast or YouTube channel with Faith and Reason. I don't know if you know those guys. Uh, yeah. Reason and Theology. Okay. Yeah. And they wanted, I think they asked me to come on and talk about Eastern canon law. So I started researching it and I, I never finished. <laughs> uh, so there's their law in many ways still resembles in a way the pre um, the pre 1234 um, decretalia. I mean, it, it really is. If you look at what they call the Pedalion, which is kind of their main book of canon law, this is for the Orthodox. Um, it includes, again, the, the universal councils, the local councils, and the, the letters of the fathers. They don't mm -hmm. have a collection of uh, papal writings that they attach to that, um, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, but, the, uh, but that's kind of their main document. And so for the Eastern Catholic Churches in 1990, John Paul II promulgated a code that applies to the Eastern Churches. Um, but to if you read like the footnotes on that, it cites as much as possible uh, those ancient sources. It's kind of uh, the 83 code. The main source it cites is the 17 code, just so you can see the connection between the two. But what's cool about the Eastern uh, code of canons for the Eastern churches is that it is citing all those ancient laws um, from the Council of Nicaea, from like the local councils of Ankira, 
or Gangra or all those other ones, or, or even different church fathers. Uh, probably one of the most extensive ones is when it talks about the authority of the Roman pontiff in there. I think the footnote is like like a whole page. <laughs> really, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Yeah. Um, so with uh, with Eastern canon law, if if memory serving my serving me right, don't don't feel bad about correcting me. But the Council of Trullo, the Quinisex Council, is extremely important when it comes to Eastern canon law. So could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that as we finish up this historical survey? Yeah, yeah. The Quinisex Council, or the, the Council of Tru the Council in Trullo, I think is is how they denominate it. Um, it's very important, probably because most of it really is just canons. Like it doesn't have a doctrinal teaching. And so what they did is they it took place, I want to say not between those two councils, but maybe just just after them. But the, the canons of the of the the the, the council in Trullo are appended to the fifth and sixth ecumenical councils. Um and that's that that's the the claim. Uh I they were ambiguously received in the West. Uh there were certain ones that were explicitly rejected. Um, some of them relating to limits on the authority of the Pope, for example, uh, or the the nature, like the practice and nature of clerical celibacy or clerical marriage, as it were. Um, so a lot of those were rejected even at the time, like by the West. They they read them and like, yeah, we don't we don't we don't accept this. Or like, I mean, if you're studying Council of Chalcedon, I don't even know what it's about, but Canon 28, if I'm not mistaken, is the one that yes. Um, maybe Pope Leo was like, yeah, scratch that one out. Like, you, you know, just the, so people will, will look at it and cite it, but oh, it said this, but I'm like, well, even at the time it, it wasn't received. So, mm -hmm. it, and again, there's a lot of argument there. So I'm not going to go into the argument and defend a side, uh, but just to say that, uh, yeah, there was something, it, it, there was a lot more kind of gradual reception of different canons in different places over time. And so the Eastern churches, as I understand, still have a lot of that, um, I was, uh, if you look at like 19th century canonists, and don't ask why I was looking looking there, um, but it's interesting because they seem to have studied Western um, canon law theory and all of that um, to put structure into the way then they approach like the Eastern canons. And like Byzantine law comes into, all their procedural law comes from Byzantine law um, because they don't have like their own separate way of doing that. And it, it's just very interesting how it all comes together and how many different sources you need to draw on. Um, as interesting as Eastern canon law is, I don't, I haven't met like an Orthodox priest or, or an Orthodox expert in canon law. Eastern Catholic canon law tends to look a lot like Roman Catholic canon law in practice. Um, but I, I'd be curious to see what, uh, how an Orthodox canonist approaches their own body of law, because it, it just, without a code, it seems much more difficult to navigate. Just like between before the 1917 code, I think it would have been much more difficult to navigate our, our kind of corpus juris canonici, our body of canon law. So, Okay, so um, before we, we get into a little bit about the, the theory and general substance of canon law, uh, could, could you give us some secondary sources, maybe like really simple introductory stuff, e even if that exists, just tell me sure. if it doesn't exist. Just Yeah. I, um, I don't think it's a bad idea to just pick up a code kind of start looking at it. Uh, John Paul II, when he promulgated the current code, uh, made a, wrote an apostolic constitution called Sacre Discipline Legis, 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 Sacre Discipline Legis, and it's um it's a very good introduction to like the purpose of the code, and and how it serves the life of the church. So I do think if you just want like a shorter text that gives just a, a explanation of the purpose of canon law, I don't think you can go wrong there. Um, 
Dr. Ed Peters, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he has a canon law blog. Uh, he teaches in Detroit. Um, he's actually the one who translated the 1917 code into English or did, did a, a popular translation of it. Um, but his blog is very readable and he has tons of resources uh, available on his blog that just kind of explain the history of the code, um, just different things. So that, that comes to mind just as a, as a good introduction. I'm trying to think my canon law books are in the other room. Um, I got a few, but, but no, I mean, I, nothing comes to mind is like, just like a, it, the thing is the problem, like the problem with canon law is it's so practical that it's not the kind of thing you, um, in a way, it's not the kind of thing you study without having a, a purpose in mind. So I think that there's a book, like a handbook of canon law. Okay. And there it kind of goes through all the stuff mm-hmm. with a practical end in mind. This is how you're going to be applying it. Uh, most people ask me canon law questions. It's going to be marriage related. And yes. so there's a great book called when is marriage null? And I think that's the book you have to read if you uh, want to be involved in marriage nullity processes. And so, okay. So now let's get into a bit of, I don't, I don't want to go too deep into theory because yeah. I know from, from having to read, uh, I took an entire class on uh, natural law and uh, that, that sort of stuff can get very deep, very quickly. So Give us a bit of an overview of some of those terms you were using about divine law, natural law, uh, ecclesial positive law, and and all of those things could could, and then after that, just a bit of a general substance of canon law, like the objects of canon law and such. Sure. So the different kinds of law. I mean, the best like person you could read on that stuff is Saint Thomas Aquinas. I think in uh, the Summa, your militant Thomas. So I'm sure you're into Secunde. I think it is. Prima Secunde, towards the end, uh, is his stuff on law, where he goes through natural law, um, divine law, you know, different kinds of divine law, which includes the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and the law promulgated there. The new law, of course, is grace. And so he goes into explanation of all that. Uh, human law, like what are the parts of law? So I think all of that's still very relevant. Um, the uh, it goes. I was reading Cicero's treatise on laws just for fun, and he actually makes almost all the same distinctions. And you're like, oh, okay, St. Thomas, he's, he's not original. He's just he just gets it though. So yeah, as a as a brief note, I was reading um Nicholas Huntingston. I think he was a 17th century uh Flemish, I think it was Flemish or Dutch Lutheran. And he actually follows exactly Cicero's pattern in in outlining uh in outlining um the way in which law works. So this isn't even just like a evil Catholic uh rationalizing yeah. thing. This is the, the Protestant reformers were doing the same exact things when it comes to the way in which they approach law. So if you're not Catholic and you're listening, this is still going to be very important to you. Sure. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's good because we just have a tradition that has thought about these things a lot. Um, and it's always been understood to be a different discipline than like civil law um, because the purpose is different. So, but yeah, just to, like, again, the different kinds of laws, how they factor into canon law, divine law would be things like, Again, the sacraments, a lot of things related to the sacraments, not everything. But for example, that water, you use, use water for baptism and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, we can't change that. It's a matter of divine law. And so even though it's in the code of canon law, it's not like the code of canon law makes that to be so. It just reiterates that this is what's essential for that sacrament. Um, things like natural law, I think would be a lot of stuff related to marriage, actually. So the fact that you need to, uh, have the use of reason in order to enter into marriage. Like that's just by nature. Like uh, 
that's just what the nature of what marriage is. And so that's part of our law. And so we codify that. But even if we didn't codify it, it would still be true. And so by, by putting it in the code, we're just making explicit those those laws. Or like you can't make a free act of consent if, you know, you suffer, if you're under threat or something. Okay. And the fact that in places where our law, uh, civil law reflects it, where you see the same thing in civil law and canon law, it might be because there's a common precedent and natural precedent and natural law they're both articulating something that's just true by nature um and putting that into terms um, but then yeah again a lot of it that will then be ecclesiastical positive law and of course it shouldn't be arbitrary the pope could say like okay on every march 1st every priest has to get a haircut like you know i don't know he, he could do that theoretically but but we would hope at least that there's wisdom prudence a respect and love of tradition and an awareness of the good of souls that goes into the different laws. And so, for example, uh, you can't be ordained a priest unless you're 25 years old, okay? Could it be younger? Yes, it's been younger in the past. Could it be older? Yeah, there's no reason it can't be older. Um, but that's a positive law um, that that has some force, Some that, that has force because it's been promulgated. There's some words, it's difficult to tell, like, is this of divine law? Uh, St. Cyprian, in his letters, so we're like, what, third century? Uh, St. Cyprian will talk about adding adding water to the wine during the liturgy, and you'll be like, oh, "Yeah, it's not in it's not in scripture, but but the apostles handed this on to us." Okay, and so there you're like, "Well, is Cyprian is he right or wrong about that?" It's the rule anyway. We're going to keep doing it, um, but Cyprian at least gives evidence that it goes back to the apostles. A clerical celibacy. Um, some people do argue that 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 does go back to the apostles. Some people say, "Oh no, the church imposed that." Um, mm -hmm. There's obviously, especially with the East, different arguments about the extent to which um, that's an apostolic. But um, even to just uh, just to clarify for everybody, yeah. even if it does go back to the apostles and is an apostolic practice, and even if they promulgated it as a part of canon law, if it was positive ecclesiastical law, that doesn't right. mean that it's binding for all ages, correct? Right. No. So, I mean, I think like women veiling in church, again, you know, the fact that it was done for 1900 years definitely would be something in its favor. And maybe it's an indication that it should be a law, but it's not. I mean, and, and the Pope has the authority, the Pope or even a local bishop, depending on where that law stands, uh, would have been someone who, who had the authority to change that norm or, or it could exist in one place, not in another. Even though we, we have a very clear example of St. Paul saying this is going to be the norm in case anyone asks. So, okay. So one one question I do have about applying these different categories of law to to a good example that everybody I'm sure is interested in um, the issue of clerical celibacy would that be an example where where would this fit in those categories? Yeah, so that's a good question. I just I bought a book called the the Apostolic Origins of Clerical Celibacy. So I'm, I'm hoping to get through that eventually just to un understand that better. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, just if you just without looking at any further, look at the fact that, okay, well, in the East, they have this practice. In the West, we have this practice. Um, and we just kind of assume they're both okay. That would seem to indicate that it's a matter of ecclesiastical positive law. It's the sort of thing that could change. It's the sort of thing that that is up to the discretion of the authority that, that can make that decision. Um, at the same time, it does have a kind of weight uh, because of the tradition behind it. So in the West, I think, it could be very bad, for example, uh, to change a norm like that uh, when it's so ancient. And uh, yes. yeah. even in even in the ordinariate where where I'm at, while there are certain um, certain cases which have to be approved by Rome, where that is dispensed with, 
it's still the norm because yeah. of many of those theological and practical reasons about having about the ordinary being not a separate right but part of the latin right itself yeah so the um i don't i don't know if we've really gotten to this but the type of objects yeah. of of natural i mean of canon law do you want right. to do you want to go into them is there a canon yeah. law categor categorization of these Sure. So the code itself is great because it does kind of present an order of like what canon law is about. Um, first, the very purpose, you just go to the very last canon and it's in there, 1752. It's kind of buried in a, a set of canons on how to remove a pastor that's not uh, very effective. But the, the phrase is uh, salus animarum uh, lex suprema. Okay. So the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. Okay. So that's what the whole code is for. Uh, that's what every law, every norm, every uh, decree uh, should be aimed at bringing that about. Okay, if there's a law and it's not useful for the salvation of souls, it can be dispensed by one who has the authority to dispense it. If it's a merely ecclesiastical positive law, um, so there's that's that's the goal of of all of the law. Um, the books of the code are helpful for seeing then like what are the areas where then it's made use of. So the first book is general norms. So that, that doesn't tell us a whole lot of itself. Um, then we have the people of God. And this is kind of like the constitution of the church. It just tell, there's a section on clergy, such section on laity, section on religious life. And so just the different people, the different persons that make up uh, the people of God, the church. Okay. The third book is on the teaching office of the church. So that's one of the functions of the church, uh, of the authority in the church is to teach. And so there's a book on that. Uh, the sanctifying office on the church. So this is primarily about the sacraments. Again, the church has the, the purpose of sanctifying others. The, the munus, they talk about three munera, so we, we can go back to those. But, but they, we have the job of sanctifying. So again, primarily the sacraments, the seven sacraments, but also this includes holy places, uh, sacramentals, holy times, uh, vows, which are a holy action. Um, so those are all contained in that book four of the code. Book five is on temporal goods. You know, say what possessions nine tenths of the law. Well, it's, it's not nine tenths of our law, but we do have laws about it. Okay, so so what do you do with things? How do you govern things? Um, penal law. So how do you punish people? How do you correct uh, sins, crimes? You know, how do you correct? when people have made mistakes. Pope Francis just promulgated a brand new book six of the code that took effect uh, in December. So still kind of in the process of studying the changes. <laughs> and then book seven is procedural law. So just how do you carry out processes in the church, um, of, especially of a more formal kind, so. Okay, now I want to ask the, the million dollar question that I'm sure everybody slogged through the first part of this video yeah, no. of us talking about all this all this craziness about, but why should I care? Because personally, I'm I'm a, I'm not a canonist. I um, I have no interest in becoming a canon lawyer. Um, so I, as somebody interested in systematic dogmatic theology, if somebody's interested in historical theology, if they're interested in philosophy, why should they take the many hours it takes to familiarize themselves, or even just as a lay faithful Catholic who just wants to become a saint, why should they care about canon law? Why should I care about canon law? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I, I do think, obviously, there's <coughs> varying degrees to which people need to know about different things. Um, but we belong to a community, which is the church, the, the Catholic church, the, the universal church. 
And those are the laws that govern it. And so I think just the same way, you know, a good American would have some familiarity with the Constitution, you know, some familiarity with the amendments, um, hopefully with your local laws, you know, to some extent. So same, you know, a good Catholic would want to know what are the laws that govern me as a Catholic. Um, at, at least traditionally, there's the precepts of the church. Um, and so even if you didn't know your code of canon law inside out, you'd at least know, okay, I have to provide for the, the good of the church. I have to get married according to the laws of the church. You know, don't eat meat on Fridays, fast on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. So the, those are things that are in canon law, um, but they were kind of summarized so that people could could keep those in mind. Um, yeah, I, again, it depends on who you are, you know, how much you actually need to know it. Procedural law, I remember in, in high school, I got to that book and I was like, I have no idea, you know, first instance and appeal and, you know, what what, what it was all about. But so I, I don't think most people need to know that. I remember um, had as uh, when I was in the Anglican Church in North America, I actually read through um, the the canon law that we had of our province. And it was it was actually pretty helpful. It, it helped me understand uh, what's my relationship between me and my priest, what's the relationship between my priest and my vestry or parish council in your case, what's the relationship between me and my bishop, what's the relationship between my bishop and other bishops in the College of Bishops. And it, it can, at least in my case, one, it could, it does exactly what you say. It helps us understand what it means to be a, a layman among this massive uh, communion that is the Roman church. And then also, I mean, historically, uh, the canon law is a dogmatic source, correct? Yeah, it, it's at the very least evidence of what the church has done. And so, like, again, when it, when it articulates what the sacraments do and how they work, um, it's not making it so, but it is referring to what we believe. Um, Pope Benedict, uh, he changed one canon related to holy orders. And again, it was just a canon articulating what is the nature of holy orders. He, he changed a line about what deacons are and how they're related to Christ through that sacrament. And by changing that canon, he didn't actually change the practice of the life of the church, but he tried to make it more accurate to the theology of, of what the sacrament of ordination to the diaconate is. And so it, it, it's understood that it, it does have that role of teaching. We look at the canons when we want to know what, the, even what the church teaches, at least in a certain, certain sense. So, Okay, so um, we're going to get into questions soon, but ask your questions in the Q&A, everybody, by the way. I have one question for you that I've been wondering about, about canon law. So recently, um, many of you might have saw my video this afternoon on it. Uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall has has brought out a brief syllogism for us. Pr premise one, Pope Francis has spoken heresy. Premise two, um, a pope that speaks heresy, ipso facto, uh, loses the papacy. Premise three, he doesn't draw the premise three, mean the conclusion, but the conclusion is pretty clear. So when it comes to um, the papacy in, in relation to a heretical pope, how does canon law treat of this? Has canon law ever treated of it? And what should we make of, of a situation like this? Sure. As far as I know, it is actually an open question uh, on some level. So the um, obviously you have the First Vatican Council declaring people inf the infallibility of the pope uh, in teaching doctrinal dogmatic matters. Um, but I think there's still it's still an open question. What happens, you know, if the pope teaches heresy, say? 
so I think there's a school that rep is represented by Robert Bellarmine and, and others like that who would say that he would cease to be Pope. Why? Because a heretic isn't a part of the church and a part of the church can't be the, the head of the church. Um, others, I think, would take a stronger, a, a different but still strong view uh, that papal infallibility actually does protect the Pope from making such a, a decision or from making such a, an error. Um, even the people, I think, like Robert Bellarmine, who hold that like heresy would, you know, public heresy would separate one from the, the body of Christ from the church. I think most canonists or theologians would have said that even like a private heresy wouldn't have done it. So let's say like one of those Borgia popes or something actually believed, you know, that there were all these gods. So they believed in all the Greek and Roman gods and they worshiped them, you know, when no one was looking. Um, let's just say, I, I'm, not saying <laughs> I'm not saying that happened. Um, but that wouldn't, uh, to the extent that it was a private action, I don't think anyone would say that that, again, ruins like you know that, that would make exclude him from his office necessarily so that it seems like something public would have to happen at least um but then who makes that call uh there's a great there's a very brief line every so often the code the code sometimes has long convoluted sentences but there's a great line in the code which just says the first c is judged by no one and that's <laughs> that's the line so you know so you think the pope's a heretic like all right, all right who what who are you going to bring that to you know i I don't think it's it's I think it's obviously a serious matter if it was if it was something that people someone was concerned about. But I think remembering uh, having read Bellarmine, he brought up a speculative case that if 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 a pope was accused of heresy and given these fraternal rebukes, that he could call an ecumenical council and allow the ecumenical council to judge him. The pope. I, yeah, the pope yeah, would, the pope the pope would pope allow with that authority. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I'll grant that. Um, but apart from that, it, yeah, it's hard to say. And I, yeah. So I actually thought of a second question. I'm sorry, guys, in the chat, if uh, if I'm taking yeah, up all the good Q&A time. Yeah. So um, when it comes to our submission to the, to the magisterium, how does canon law deal with that? Because that's something I think that's very relevant to, especially uh, in, in a certain time, when everybody can become a public voice. So how, how does canon law restrict our words about the Holy Father, about our bishops, about um, our priests and, and, and stuff like that? Sure, and that's probably worth reviewing um, for sure to know exactly, but, um, oh man, I'm not, I'm not gonna have all the categories off the top of my head. Uh, John Paul, <laughs> though, he, after he promulgated the code in 83, I think it was in 87, that he promulgated a ad tuendum fidem, which changed the code slightly on profession of faith uh, and exactly what needs to be contained in the profession of faith. And, and he put three categories there. Uh, those are the things that must be held, um, that, that are de fide, those things that belong to the deposit of faith. Then there were those things that have a necessary connection to the deposit of faith. So even though they might not be divinely revealed, they're so intimately connected with the things that are divinely revealed that to reject them would be to reject the faith. And then there are other things that, for example, might be taught in, a, in an official way and yet don't fall into that category. And, and the phrase it uses there is there's supposed to be a, a pious assent, I think, is something like what it requires. So it wouldn't be the virtue of faith that's necessary there. And yet there'd still be at least a, a kind of affirmation of those things. And so, so at the very least, those first two categories would contain all the things that couldn't be rejected. Um, when it comes to things the Pope says, like, is that kind of what you're asking? Like, if, like, a, 
of the yeah, Pope. If Pope in a in a sermon or an interview or something, and then you have an angry rad trad online that says uh, the Holy Father is stupid and I don't like him. Like, would would that be an an example where somebody is uh, going against a certain canon? Sure, and I I don't uh, yeah. So generally, I'd say no. Just generally, I think people should be charitable to the Holy Father as to anyone. And we can start with a smaller example of like your parish priest. You know, if your parish priest, you know, some people do think, oh, the priest said it, I, it has to be true, or I have to believe it. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. At the same time, they do have a teaching authority, so there's a kind of, uh, you know, docility that should be present there, a kind of willingness to listen, to learn from someone who's been entrusted with that office of teaching. Uh, because they'll be held responsible for that. Uh, Christ is very clear about about uh, the the weight uh, that falls on teachers, and so I do think there's a kind of deference that should be there. Maybe you're like, well, it seems like it contradicts the faith, um, you know? Then yeah, you got to hold the faith. Um, but yeah, so like when the Pope is teaching, even I mean, Pope Benedict was very nice because he made it very clear when he wrote books, for example, that he's like, this is not me as Pope. This is me as theologian extraordinary Joseph Ratzinger. And so you could read the book and be like, no, I don't buy it. I think your exegesis is wrong in all these passages. And he'd be like, that's fine. Like he, you wouldn't, there would be no, he, he made it just very clear that you weren't in a problematic spot. So I, I do think a lot of the times when the Pope is teaching or, you know, giving off the cuff comments, um, those wouldn't kind of demand the same attention as something like saying encyclical. Okay. Um, even in encyclical, okay, it's not a dogmatic, uh, in, infallible declaration, but at the same time, it does have a kind of weight that I would be hesitant, uh, to just reject out of hand, be like, all right, this is the part that's true. This is the part that's not true or mm -hmm. things like that, but kind of slow down. Um, Amoris Laetitia, have you heard of, heard of that? Amoris Laetitia. I've heard, I've heard, uh, people talk about it, but I've never sure. read it myself. Yeah, so that's the Pope's Pope Francis's post-synodal apostolic exhortation from the Synod on the Family. A lot of it's really good, but most of the press seemed to be about a footnote in chapter eight that seemed to suggest that it was possible for uh, divorced and remarried persons to approach Holy Communion. Um, do you have to accept a footnote uh, in, in a chapter of an encyclical as, as infallible teaching? No, I don't. I don't think you do. Um, and I think, you know, con you know, conversation can continue about how to apply what's being said there. So, okay. Actually, very sorry guys in the chat, but I have a third, very quick question. Love to. Everyone thinks Canada law is boring and then they, then, then the other questions come. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is related to, um, the section in the catechism okay. in the catechism of the Catholic church. It talks about in regard to death penalty the death penalty, that it is um, that the Catholic Church um, works towards the abolition of the death penalty. And in former times, we we had practiced it, but now we have come to a greater understanding of the dignity of the human person. I'm paraphrasing, but using the same language. Um, and in the footnote, it footnotes to, I believe, a sermon of uh, from the Holy Father, from Pope Francis. Um, when it comes to the catechism in particular, and this might just open up a can of worms, sure, but yeah. does what one, what is, um, are we allowed to disagree with that statement? Because it, it's very hard for me to assent to that statement Two, in, in the catechism, uh, do we hold to the, the weight from the very fact it's in the catechism or do we hold from the weight of the footnote of where it's originally found? Yeah. 
I do think the catechism is like a normative teaching document in the church. So again, like, like an encyclical, I wouldn't, you know, just say like, well, I like this part, I don't like this part or, but you, you, it, it does, it's certainly, I mean, the, the name of the document is catechism and John Paul II when promulgating, it's very clear. This is the catechism. Like this is what we're going to be using to help us teach the faith. Uh, so something like that, you know, I, and in general, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, St. Thomas says, you know, change, changing, changing laws is bad unless the, the good really outweighs it. And so it's probably true with a lot of changes that are made. That's, I, I'm, I'm always very hesitant about change. Um, but even in that change, I think it is more of a statement of policy in a way than like the doctrine, like doctrine itself changing. I, I certainly don't think doctrine itself changed. Apparently there was a, a lot of discussion with the Holy Father between him and the, the head of the CDF on how to articulate that. And uh, they're very clear in the end about not saying, for example, that the death penalty is per se malum, is, is intrinsically evil, okay? Um, but can the Catholic Church say, like, as a policy, we're going to oppose the death penalty, or we think it's, it's, it's more in line with our teaching on human dignity to not promote this, this way of ending someone's life? I, I think that's perfectly acceptable. You know, it's, and so that the Pope wanted to change it to make that clearer, he can do that. Um, especially if people were being misled, I, I'm always, so we're in America, you know, we have our own kind of things that we're interested in, our own kind of problems that come up. Um, but then like when I listened to his addresses to the Roman Rota talking about tribunals in, uh, like South America and the kinds of problems they have with like lawyers and fees. And I'm just like, Oh, we don't have any of that. So like what he's trying to respond to might, might not be something that's really relevant to us. On some level, obviously that canon is relevant to people like judges and lawmakers um, and executioners, I guess, and, and people on death row. But like by and large, like I, by and large, I, it doesn't make a big difference in my life what the church's like stances as far as like promoting, um, promoting or, or, or advocating against uh, the death penalty. And so, but I think Pope Francis did probably have a, a clear reason in mind for why he thought that that should be changed in the normative teaching document. So. Okay, so we're going to get into a few questions in the chat. Ignore the chat. I can't yes. that much. Yeah. So just tell me, ask me the question. I won't look. Um, so I have about a little over 10 minutes, and it looks like we have four or five good questions. So let's try to keep these a bit brief, but uh, not not too uh, not too brief. So Thomas 1989 asks, I need to know if a baptized Catholic but not confirmed can partake on Holy Communion by canon law in the Western Rite. Yep, you can. I mean, as long as you're not living in a state that's opposed to uh, the worthiness to receive the sacrament. So if it's been a while, go to go to confession. Uh, if you're living in an irregular marriage situation, get that straightened out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's, it, you may partake of Holy Communion. So. Okay, and uh, actually, I'm very sorry, guys, but <laughs> another question came up. So, for example, you, you just talked about irregular marriage. So there's many situations of converts, um, myself included, where uh, my wife and I were married outside of the Catholic Church. So, um, so if, I'm, if I'm interpreting correctly, we... Uh, do not have the grace of matrimony. Um, All right. So <laughs> now this oh. is a complicated one, unfortunately. So uh, the church respects marriage as a natural institution. Okay. So anyone, any, any man, any woman, not married, uh, just to make things simple, can get married. Okay. Yes. Very simple. 
um, whether they're both baptized or neither baptized or both Catholic or not Catholic. Or, I mean, as far as like, this is a general principle. Catholics have an extra rule, okay? Uh, if you are Catholic, if you have ever been a baptized Catholic, you're bound by what's called canonical form, okay? So in order to validly enter marriage, if you are Catholic, and you weren't Catholic at the time you were married, so no. this wouldn't have applied to you, um, then uh, you um, need to be married in front of a, a minister of the church with two witnesses. That's that's canonical form. It's barest, simplest uh, form, okay? Um, so people are married. Uh, let's say you have two non-Catholics, okay, who are both baptized. If they get married outside, outside of the church because, you know, they're not Catholic, never were, um, it's a valid marriage. And what makes it sacramental is the fact that they're both baptized. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's baptism itself that lends the, the strength to marriage. Because the couple, um, because the couples are administering, at least in Western um, sacramentology, the couples are administering the sacrament to each other in, in the fact that they consent to, to marriage. Yeah. So there's nothing extra that has to be done by uh by non-Catholics who join the church, who are married um, outside of the church. Right. Especially, you know, if it's their first marriage, again, some people come to the Catholic church and they've already been married a few times and they're like, well, we'll look at that. It's hard to, I don't want to give like too complete of an answer here because yeah. there's so many circumstances, but you see like in St. Paul, again, first Corinthians, it's, there's so much canon law in there. Canon law. Yeah. But he, he gives uh, the kind of de this determination, like if someone converts, they should stay with their spouse if possible. But if it's not possible, they can they can leave. Okay, so the idea that we kind of derive over the centuries is that it's it's when both parties are baptized that lends a firmness to the marriage that no authority could dissolve. Okay, mm -hmm. um, whereas if if it isn't if they if they aren't both both baptized, uh, the idea what St. Paul is articulating is you know the privilege in favor of faith, and so the fact that one party could then marry someone else for the sake of their faith. For the sake of, of being united to a believer was was understood in his time and that that permission always carried through so it's always been understood that baptism is what lends uh marriage its sacramental character okay, okay. so we'll get to a question by lenard he asks <laughs> how does dispensation work in canon law can some canons be dispensed only by the holy father a bishop ordinary pastors yeah uh good question so yeah, canon law uh, articulates what can be dispensed, who can dispense what. And so typically the idea would be that whoever promulgated the law can dispense the law, okay? So if the Pope promulgates a law, universal law, the Pope is the one who can dispense it. If the bishop makes his, his own laws, the bishop's the one who can dispense them. Um, then there are norms, and, and this has been extended with the new codes, or since Vatican II, uh, where it articulates when the bishop can dispense from universal law. And it would only be a positive law, ecclesiastical positive law. So like the, the bishop's like, you know, saying I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit takes too long. We're going to shorten it. You can't do that. Okay. But um, a good example would be the recent stuff with Traditionis Custodis. It seems uh, like limits on Latin mass requires that it not be, that it not be done in a church. And uh, I think a lot of bishops can't quite figure out how to preserve the good of souls while respecting that law. And so they have, permission, they, the code articulates uh, the conditions under which they can dispense from that law uh, in, a, in a concrete way. And so bishops can. I, I as just a normal parish priest, or even like a pastor, um, we receive faculties from our bishops to dispense from certain other laws, of which some of which the code explicitly provides for. Um, so for example, like the fast before communion, if someone like really, you know, 
had some just cause I could dispense from the fast or even like the Sunday obligation, for example, if someone, um, you know, had some reason they could receive a dispensation for me um, from that. But yeah, it depends on the nature of the law. I, I wish I could give a more complete answer here, but it, because there are so many different laws and authorities, it's it's hard to give a complete answer, but, but yeah. Okay. So is there such thing as speculative canon law? Like are there uh canon law theorists out there? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> more of that. Like there used to be more of that. Like here, oh, I don't have it. Yeah, I do have it. So like you just I think when you have like all kinds of weird laws um, and people need to put order to it. So this is a guy named Reifenstuhl. I cited him in my thesis. He's a German. It's still in the package because I don't use it that often. I, I just use a couple volumes of it. Um, but this is one volume of seven. And it's his kind of complete textbook on like canon law. And because the laws are all spread out and there are so many sources, because like I said, the, the Corpus Series Canonici, um, the, it's called the Libra Extra in, in 1234, became the main source of law. But then people kept promulgating things. Pope kept make, Popes kept making new laws. Council of Trent happened. And there's just more laws. So you need geniuses who can put this all in order and actually apply it. And so some of it is putting stuff in order. But they are also speculating. They are thinking out, like, OK, what are all the possible categories of this? Or like, what are different theories of this? So that's a kind of a general seven volume, one volume of seven, uh, where they're doing speculative canon law. I've always wanted to read it, but I it's yeah there are a lot of other things to read uh and this is a guy named Michiels and uh i'm sorry i see the title okay uh de delictis et penis and so this is on a on on delics and punishments and again this is one volume of three and Michiels again looking at the principles looking at the canons looking at all the stuff tries to again articulate what is the nature behind all of the church's canons on penal law um, and so, yeah, you do have like speculative in the sense that people are thinking about really thinking out these things to the fullest. There's gonna, another guy named Capello. Uh, he's got a five volume set on sacramental theology, uh, sacramental canon law. And it's still worth looking at and reading today, even though he wrote it before the seven, I think before the 17 code. Um, it it's, just helps one to understand the thinking that's going on there. Uh, obviously, you don't have to read all these things. I mean, the, the code really is does try to do it all, but but um, but you do have gen like geniuses out there. I think who, who who spend a lot of time trying to understand what really goes into these things. And I I, I don't want to say there aren't as many nowadays as there once were, but they they're out there. There are still people thinking thinking these things all the way through. So, okay, last question, and this is a bit of a doozy. So Thomas asks, so in 2022, what is the canonical state of the Society of St. Pius X? Oh, man. I'm no expert on them. Uh, someone was sending me, uh, what is it, the was it Archbishop Lefebvre, the open letter to confuse Catholics. And uh, I never never read it, but you know, I, I found the audiobook, listened to it. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, most of the problems he's complaining about are, are real problems. Um, but I think he wrote it before he did the whole uh, consecrating bishops thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so um, I, and I always have a lot of sympathy for you know SSPX people, especially because you know in my diocese I think things are pretty good, but you, you do get places in the church where it's it's harder at least. But um, so Pope Benedict lifted the excommunications that were that uh, had been placed on the archbishop on the bishops that had been consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, people will argue about it, but I mean it. It's one of those five 
another six maybe crimes in the code uh, where the the penalties automatic excommunication where it's it can only be lifted by the holy father himself uh it's such a clear matter and you say well maybe he didn't know well no he knew I've read on SSPX's website the letters John Paul II sent back and forth with him. And he's like, you know, by the chair of Peter, you're like, as your father speaking to you, my son, do not do this. So you're like, you know, like, uh, no, I think I, I think they would apply. Uh, so I do, I do think they were excommunicated. I think uh, Benedict lifted those excommunications. And I think they have an irregular status. I, I don't think they have a clear status. They're not a normal order. I've heard that when they dismiss people from the order, uh, they do still apply to the congregation for clergy to get people um, like removed from the clerical state. This is just something I've heard. Um, so it, like they still kind of respect on some level the official structure of the church. They certainly recognize that Pope Francis is the Holy Father, at least officially. I know, you know the members might say otherwise, but but officially they, they do recognize Pope Francis is the Pope. Um, pope Francis himself has been strange in recognizing that they can be delegated to do marriages and that they do have faculties to hear confessions uh, because that sacrament is tied to jurisdiction. And so it's strange to me. Um, and it's, and so that I don't, I, I can't really answer uh, the canonical state. I do think they have an irregular status, no longer excommunicated, at least uh, in virtue of what happened in 1988 and yet not uh, something that I think uh, that I think a Catholic who wants to be in good standing should should approach necessarily. Um, but I am not going to give a definitive word because it is a strange situation. So. Okay, that's all that I think we have for everybody tonight. Um, will you we plug anything that you have uh, that you would like uh, everybody to know about like any really? blogs, channels, whatever books, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Yeah, read the Bible, uh, you know, <laughs> pray, for me, pray for me, donate money to the poor and religious sisters. I don't know, let's, let's just, just be good. <laughs> the, those are your plugs. I love it. I love okay. it. Those are my favorite plugs that I've ever seen. Okay. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being on. I definitely love to bring you on another time if we want to go into a deeper dive, because obviously there's a lot more to talk about in the, really? in the question of canon law. You have, you have convinced me to, um, to, by a code of canon law. So well, Francis keeps changing a little bit every year. So you, you have to make sure you get the <laughs> I'll just, you know what? I'll just buy the 1917 one and then I'll be good, right? Uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for being on. And we will talk to you later. Follow um, follow him on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter tag? Is it I just Max Nightingale? At Max Nightingale. Yeah. So follow at Max Nightingale on Twitter if you want to hear more base takes. And before we go, Caden uh, wants to let you know that he is a big fan of you. Oh, and I've awesome. heard from many people that um, that they love your Twitter. So you might not realize you're making an impact, but you, you definitely are. And especially even in my own conversion, you made a huge impact. That's always beautiful to hear. So thank you. Yep. Thank you. And after this, for, for everybody else, we'll be having a chill stream with Eric Redacted, the other Paul, and Militant Jamie. So I will see you guys all after this. Goodbye. Lord.